should have guessed that when I chose to do a programme on Cairn Papple Hill that there would be some climbing involved and indeed there is. I'm on a steep road out to Bathgate in between Glasgow and Edinburgh, nearer to Edinburgh. I'm going to a site that's on the top of the highest hill around, I think. Uh, and and they say that on a clear day you can see all the way across Scotland from this site. You can see the Isle of May, which is out in the North Sea at the mouth of the Firth of Forth. And you can see the top of Goatfell, which is the big mountain on Arran off the west coast. And that's incredible. There cannot be many places where you can see both sides of the country. My name is Matthew McGee and I've travelled by bike, boat and train to eight of Scotland's most beautiful, remote and fascinating Neolithic sites, talking to expert archaeologists about the secrets these stone monuments still hold about life 5,000 years ago. At that moment, when we stopped being hunter-gatherers and settled as farmers for the first time, when there was an explosion of culture that we're still discovering today. In this programme, we'll explore the mystery of what exactly filled Cairnpapple Hill's circle of ceremonial holes. We'll see how a dramatic and unusual grave might have resulted in the destruction of that early monument, and we'll hear about the stone axe head found here that was the only one of its kind ever found in Scotland. Welcome to Stone Me, investigating Scotland's oldest places. Okay, we're turning off the main road here onto one of these side roads that just shoots straight up. Cairnpapple, half a mile. Thank you, Historic Scotland sign. So this hill location is really interesting because most Cairnpapple is, well, it's been lots of things in its life that had an early Neolithic, late Neolithic, Bronze Age, Iron Age, early Christian life. One of the interesting things about it is it was in use for probably about 4,000 years. So part of what it is is a, a henge monument, so a, a ditch and an outer bank in a circular shape, enclosing a space where probably ritual and ceremonial things took place. There are various pits in the ground which may have held timber posts or standing stones. So it might have been a timber circle, it might have been a stone circle. And yeah, henge monuments and stone circles like this, pretty much everywhere else, are down low on flat ground, surrounded by hills in a kind of bowl formation and kind of slightly hidden from view. They're not usually prominent. So it's interesting that this one is up on top of the highest hill around, which obviously means it won't be surrounded by other, encircled by hilltops around it. And it's on a hilltop, might be very visible. Although I did read yesterday somebody saying, that the precise hilltop they chose, despite being high, is actually 
not really visible from anywhere. So maybe it was just a different application of the same principles. The views are incredible. It is a full panoramic 360 degree view of central Scotland. The Pentlands in the southeast, the Yokels in the north, right down the Firth of Forth in the east. In the west, it just kind of fades away into haze. So it's a cloudless day, but it's a bit hazy in the horizon. So I don't think we'll see Aaron from here today. And the site itself, it's, it's kind of like a, a ring of rubble inside some stones and a big grassy mound in the middle. Now that grassy mound, the grass covers a, a concrete shell that was built after the first excavation of here in the 1940s. And then around the outside, there's, you know, the, the, the faint impression, I suppose, of the, the ditch, which would be much deeper and broader. And the embankment, so the, the piled up earth on the outside of the ditch, and that's what the henge is all about. That's what a henge is. It's a usually circular, circular-ish ditch with a, a mound of earth around the outside. And it's thought that this was about creating a space for ritual and ceremony that excluded people and probably, in a lot of cases, the mound on the outside was, um, was so high that it made it impossible to see in. So it was an exclusive experience for certain people and not for others. It really is very windy. Oh, it's beautiful. Cairn Papal Hill is a shrine in the sky. It was a holy place for something like 4,000 years and standing there on a beautifully clear day it's really no wonder at all that this is the place that people chose for thousands of years to come to venerate, remember and bury their dead, to perform rituals and ceremonies, to be the heart of their communal life. People after people came, adding, repurposing and building over the ritual monuments of their ancestors, creating a site of unparalleled richness and complexity. It's all very moving and beautiful. But for archaeologists, it's a total nightmare. I'm Alison Sheridan and I'm an archaeologist and I worked at National Museums Scotland for 32 and a half years. It's an absolutely magnificent site on the top of a hill. It's a really commanding place in the landscape and it's a very complex monument uh, with activity at different periods and it's also a monument that's being renegotiated in the present. So it was excavated in 1947 and 1948 by Professor Stuart Piggott, who was the professor in Edinburgh University. And then in 1999, Gordon Barclay, who was an inspector with what was then called Historic Scotland, reinterpreted the site in the light of what was then known about certain kinds of sites, henges. And, and now it's ripe for re-evaluation as well. And... What are we actually looking at? So what, what is around us in terms of the site? Well, there is um, an oval mound with a ditch on the inside. That's what we call a henge. And it has two 
openings in it, one to the north and one to the south. But also, uh, we're actually sitting on the extension to an early Bronze Age cairn, which is a big heap of stones. Um, And around us, there are settings in concrete, which mark the position of features that were here before the cairn was here. So it's, it's, it's quite a complicated site. And in fact, right behind us is a concrete dome that covers over three graves. And of course, that concrete dome was created by Historic Scotland as a way of presenting the site to the public. And it's very interesting that they had to make the decision as to which of the many phases of this site they would present and how. So, so we're looking at basically a 3D version of one interpretation of what happened here. That is correct, yes, indeed. Our job is to try and pick out the earliest stuff here, the Neolithic parts that in some cases are buried underneath the bits on display from the Copper, Bronze and Iron Ages. Luckily, I have Alison with me. She spent her career at the National Museum of Scotland working in the Neolithic and Bronze Age periods. As you'll see when it comes to an overview of the whole of Neolithic life, she's pretty hard to beat. She walks me around the site, picking out the earliest parts. If you look just to your right, there is a setting for what would have been the hole for either a standing stone or a standing post. And there is a discussion between archaeologists as to whether they were stones or posts. Personally, I think they were stones. And if you look at the curb of the cairn just to our right, you'll notice that the the curb stones are really suspiciously big. And Professor Richard Bradley of, of Reading University has argued that perhaps those stones were the stones that had stood in these holes originally. Okay. So that stone is, I suppose, about a metre and a half. Oh, two metres, I would think. Two metres. Yeah. It's sitting on its side, so if that was standing Correct. up... It would be so imposing. They, they wouldn't be the biggest stones in the world, but no. they'd, you know, they'd, they'd send make a, a message. statement. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. They, they would have defined... A sacred space. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of Neolithic, okay, we're looking now at one of the positions of these holes. This was one of 24 or so, um, which would describe uh, an oval. It's nearly a circle, but it's, it's effectively an oval. Let's walk the circuit of them. So here's another one here. And here's another one here. And what Historic Environment Scotland have done is to sort of define it by creating a little miniature wall around it. And the interior is lower than the exterior. So it's clear to people that's that's what it is. And then we go out onto the grass. Yes. And we've got the same kind of hole, uh, but it's a bit more obvious here because there aren't that's, stones all around that's it. That's right, yes. So what they have done is to define the rock-cut hole for a post or a stone um, by filling it with red gravel yeah so that visitors can actually see what what they are talking about and 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 they cut i mean this is a striking feature of the site isn't it they were cutting right down into the bedrock in other places they were just digging into dirt maybe that that must have been tough yes in most cases they were actually rock cutting and the, the ditch that you see that was also rock cut to a depth of over a meter so it's a lot of effort that has gone into creating this palimpsest of a monument and using, what, like other stones and, and antlers? So, I mean, Probably tools. antlers, antlers, yeah, yeah. So take them a long time. Yes. We've had to come inside now. The wind was making recording difficult. 
We're standing inside that concrete dome, beside one enormous and one smaller grave. It's imposing, eerie and quite echoey. Alison is talking me through the sequence of how people came to be here and what they made and did at this sacred place. The very earliest activity here was early Neolithic. Then you've got middle Neolithic uh, cemetery with cremated remains. You've got late Neolithic stone circle. You've got a Calcolithic henge. Yeah, Calcolithic is Copper Age. Yeah, um, and you've got a late Calcolithic or early Bronze Age North Grave. You've got early Bronze Age kists and a cairn. And then slightly later in the early Bronze Age, sometime between 19, probably about 1900 BC, they enlarged the cairn. Yeah? And that actually impinged on the ditch of the Henge, which by that stage will have been um, silted up. Yeah? And then they deposited into that enlarged cairn two cinerary urns of, we call them collared urn type, um, upside down, containing cremated remains, and again with burnt pins in them. And, you know, sadly... Uh, we can't date the cremated bones because they weren't kept. Um, but we can say from, again, I've, I've done a, a radiocarbon dating programme of cinerary urns. They're going to be sometime between 1900 and 1600 BC, so they're early Bronze Age. And so, um, going back to the Middle Neolithic Cemetery with cremated remains, uh, in some of the, several of the holes you get deposits of cremated bone, and then you get um, other deposits of cremated bone that were not in little pits. Okay. And so you have to imagine this arc possibly of post holes here, sometime between 3300 and 3000 BC. And are they the post holes we saw out there, or are they different ones? No, they are different ones. And in fact, they're all covered over now by the early Bronze Age secondary cairn. So you can't see it. So they're under our feet somewhere here? They're, yes, they're actually outside of this concrete dome and underneath the stones. Right, I see. Okay. We don't know how long... I mean, let's assume that these were um, timber posts rather than stones. I mean, they're about two feet, about 30 centimetres wide at their widest. My own gut feeling is that they probably were posts. So they, could, they would have stood as markers for where people were buried for, I don't know what, 50 years, perhaps longer. Yeah. yeah, this wasn't an accident that they got buried here. They were buried here with great care and devotion, and for a good reason. And then what came after that? After that, we had the, the, the circle of post holes that we see. So let's uh, grasp that nettle. Yes. Was it timber in them, or was it stone? And why is there so much um, debate and confusion about that? Well... Um, if you look at the plan here, you can see it's actually it's more like an oval uh, with two supplementary holes, one towards the north and one towards the south. And you can see that it's kind of orientated so that the entrance is just about at the southeast. When Stuart Piggott excavated, he felt that the shape of the holes uh, was appropriate for having held stones. Then, when Gordon Barclay came and reassessed the site in 1999, he himself had excavated uh, various henge sites, and uh, he had found timber circles. 
And before him, Roger Mercer had also excavated and had found timber circles. And so between them, they said, well, if you look at the shape of the holes, mm, we think that they could take timber. However, in the, in the noughties, Professor Richard Bradley came and said, well, look, if you look at the big stones that are on the site now that have been used, for example, as the curb stones for the early Bronze Age cairn or the standing stone for the north grave, they look very suspiciously as though they have been taken from a stone circle. And if you count the number of stones, it's, you know, yeah, you, there are, what, 24 or possibly 26 stones here and the number of curb stones in the early Bronze Age thing is 22 and then you've got the North Grey you know it kind of fits and I am persuaded by that. So in terms of location usually when when stone or timber circles or henge monuments or other earthworks were built they were built flat ground and lowland ground, uh, usually in particular settings surrounded by hills. This is kind of the opposite of that. So what was going on there? Yes, I just think that people were taking advantage of the most amazing local topography and the fact that you could see for, I don't know how many miles or kilometres, well over 100 kilometres in most directions from here. So if you're going to have um, religious ceremonies at midwinter or whenever what better place to have it than somewhere where you could you know you could see far and wide so it was part of the theater i mean it's theatricality is is this kind of running theme that goes all the way through the building of the because of its relative remoteness up in the hill nobody really thinks that this was a residential site it was entirely ceremonial with people performing rites under the sprawling sky to mark the dead or the seasons, or the gods, or successful crops, or other things we haven't thought of yet. Who those people were isn't as mysterious as you might think. We know where they came from, and thanks to objects found at Cairn Papel, a little bit about how they lived. They would have been descended from people who came from the continent, probably from the Nord-Pas-de-Calais region of northern France, um, probably sometime around 3,900, 3,800. They came by boat. And when they got here, they, I mean, on, on the continent, they'd been farming for a 1,000 years, so they knew what they were doing. They sought out good, good agricultural land. They found it, and they were successful farmers. They also sought out other immigrant farming communities to network with them because you need friends, you need supporters, you need to keep your gene pool healthy so you don't want to be inbreeding. And and part of the connections that we can see involve the exchange of very nice axe heads and raw material for making axe heads and and other things too. So, for example, um, pitchstone, which is obsidian, a volcanic glass from the Isle of Arran, you get that moving around Scotland and northern England a lot. So these farming communities were networking very successfully. What exactly they were doing here, we know that they were uh, lighting hearths. Um, They would have come up here because it's an amazing place. Um, The landscape around it would have been forested, but when you're on the top of this hill, you would have been able to see a very long distance. So they could have been just coming here for very short periods. I don't think they would have lived on this tall, exposed, windy... You know, it would have been slightly warmer than nowadays, um, but it still would have been very windy. So probably just temporary activity here. And then slightly later, they were 
there were funeral rites here. Is that right? That's right, yes. Um, or at least what we can say is that an arc of holes that may well have uh, contained posts at one point, and many of which contained cremated human remains, was found here on, on the top of the hill. And there are also other deposits of cremated human remains that are not in holes. They were just little deposits on on the ground surface. And from the radiocarbon date that I got from uh, one of the pins that was used to to fasten the funerary garment in which they were cremated, that radiocarbon date tells us that that happened sometime between 3,350 and 3,020 BC. Okay. And and do we think that the people whose cremated remains were in there, do you think that happened to lots of people or were these a small number of chosen people from that society to represent their family or to represent everybody? What what was going on there? That's a really good question because um, it must be selective. There, I can't remember how many similar cemeteries there are in Britain. Not very many, I mean fewer than 20. Uh, There's one that was found recently at Fortiviat near Perth. And again, it was just a small number of people, you know, maybe 7, 12, fewer than 20 people anyway. That can only have been a small segment of the population at the time. And frankly, we don't know how other dead people were dealt with between 3,300 and 3,000 BC. It may well be that everybody got cremated, but in many cases they would simply put the remains in a river or just scatter them where you're not going to find them at all. So, yes, so they were marking out a subsection of the population, but we have no way of telling whether these were important people. They could well, they may well have been. I mean, the, the key message here is that they were being buried in a most fantastic location where their spirits could go and, you know, tr- they could travel all around Scotland if they wanted to, kind of thing. So, yeah, this wasn't an accident that they got buried here. They were buried here with great care. Alison has laid out on the capstone of an ancient tomb, a stone, by the way, that she's almost certain was once a standing stone in the circle above her heads some site diagrams and maps of axe finds. It sounds dry, but it's from this kind of diligent attention to the stone types of tiny fragments that people like Alison build whole worlds, how they make sense of life at Scotland's oldest places. So Alison's got an amazing uh, plan of the whole site with stuff about all the various eras. eras. Um, Can you just talk us through what was the earliest stuff on the site? Yes, the earliest stuff is quite ephemeral um, evidence for human presence here, probably sometime between 3700 and 3500 BC. So it exists in artefact form. There are a couple of sherds of what we call carinated bowl pottery, um, and one of them has a little lug on it, which tells me, as a Neolithic pottery specialist, that this wasn't the very earliest carinated bowl pottery to be used in Scotland. It's probably a, a couple of generations down the line. So that's why I would, I would guess a date of 3,700 to 3,500. There's also two fragments from two stone axe heads, which are fantastically important because one of them is made of an axe head of... Tuff from Great Langdale in Cumbria in the northwest of England. 
And what I've got here is a distribution map of the products of Great Langdale. And you see that there are thousands and thousands of axe heads that were made of this stone. It's a wonderful stone. It's a fine-grained, grey, tough, volcanic tough. And so the one here is one of several, or many, that have been found in Scotland. So there's a huge concentration in Dumfries and Galloway, just across the Solway Firth from Cumbria. And the other axe head fragment is a flake from the blade of an axe head. This is from Greigluid in northwest Wales. And you can see it's the only Welsh axe head to have been found in Scotland. So that's really, really important. But both of these things remind us that these first farmers, these were the, the, you know, the first farming communities in, in Scotland, um, now, they would have been very, very well connected. Room, and it's the North Grave, a huge, imposing structure that dominates this reconstructed concrete cairn. It's a little more modern than the Neolithic time that we're looking at, but as Alison explains, it's probably a crucial part of the mystery of the Neolithic parts of Cairn Papel. Somebody was buried here with great pomp and circumstance. I mean, it's a fantastic, it's a rock-cut grave. It's a so-called North Grave. And, and you can see there's a huge standing stone at one end of it, and there is a very fine um, set of stones fringing it. Inside this grave, Professor Piggott found the, just a little kind of shadow of where somebody had been buried... And if we come over here, he found the last remnants of two intriguing timber wooden things. So around here, there was, he described it as it's nine by six inches, and underneath it were teeth. So he said perhaps this was a, a wooden mask over the face of the deceased at the eastern end. And then, along one side of it, there was another wooden thing, which he described as being long. It looked like a club or a paddle. He thought it's most likely to be a club. And we think that there probably was a cairn of stones within this area. So these these stones here would have acted as the curb of a cairn. Okay? So that's sometime between 2,300 and 2,100. There was another grave outside here, um, with another beaker in it. It's a much smaller, more modest grave there, and that probably was erected at the same time. And one of the many $64,000 questions is, uh, that huge standing stone, was that taken from the pre-existing stone circle? I think it probably was. And you can see it's, it's tapered to the bottom, so it was designed yeah. to be placed upright in the ground. And if you believe that, if you look at one of these stones in the so-called curb, that too is sort of narrowed at one end. That mm. could well have stood upright at one point. So what somebody here was doing was very boldly appropriating a by-then ancient monument. From what we now understand about stone and timber circles and henge monuments, it is quite conceivable that the stone circle was created about 3000 or 2900 BC. And, and there was a funny, a funny feature inside that stone circle, which Piggott called a cove. That probably was the same time as that. Then, probably around 2,500, they enclosed that stone circle, slightly off kilter, with this oval bank and ditch, this henge monument. 
Okay. And then, sometime between 2300 and 2100, somebody appropriated that site and said, I am so important, I'm going to be buried here on top of this magnificent hill, and I, it's the great I am thing. Yeah? So this would have been a VIP. They have taken the, I'll call it late Neolithic stone circle, and they are redeploying the stones here. Which is, again, it's a very bold thing to do. Yeah, it's yeah. like taking down a bit of a church and saying, right, yeah, this is going to be my grave now. So they were appropriating to themselves the power of the ancestors and the sacredness of the monument to say, yeah, I'm really, I'm really, I deserve this. Yeah. So, so we're here somewhere round about the middle of the age of this stone circle, looking at probably three or four of the stones that would have made that up. Absolutely. And so to the big question, what was actually happening here? What were people doing at this stone circle and big earthwork 5,000 years ago? Um, the, the circle was orientated southeastwards. It may well have had an astronomical orientation. So it may well be that people were coming together here around 2900 BC they were having ceremonies at particular times of the year, or a particular time of the year. And again, you can understand how it's a, it would be a wonderful gathering place where you would, we don't know the nature of the rituals that take, took place, but if it was to observe the position of the sun at a particular time, if it was midwinter solstice, that's the shortest day of the year. And for farming communities, that would be the time when you've got to make sure that the gods will ensure that the days are going to get longer again so that you'll be able to grow your crops. So to propitiate the gods, to, to, you know, to make sure that the world is still going to keep turning and everything will be okay, that's why you would have your ceremonies at midwinter. I suppose the other thing that I need to say about this, and for the sake of argument, I'll say stone circle even though it's oval and even though people still debate, whatever, the stone circle. It's very likely to have been inspired by the stones of Stenness in Orkney because around 3000 or 2900 BC, we know that that's when that particular monument was built. And in that case, at, at the stones of Stenness, they built the ditch and the, hen, the, the bank around it at the same time. And that was a single entrance henge. And in, actually, in the interior of the Stones of Stones, there's this very odd feature of three standing stones, which was called the Cove. And here at Cairn Papel, there is a very odd feature of three big pits, which, again, Stuart Piggott called a cove. So I think these may well be contemporary with the stone circle there. And so if there's a connection to Stones, that's more evidence of quite how extensive that network was. That's a long way away. It is a long way away, and, and that's the other amazing thing about Camp Appel. At different periods, you can see different networks of long-distance contacts in action. And these networks would have been operating for different reasons at different times. So when people emulated the Stones of Stenness, this was because in Orkney, an amazing society, and a really innovative society, was, uh, had developed there where very ambitious farmers and well-to-do farmers in Orkney who had plenty of cattle and they had plenty of agricultural surplus put their efforts into building amazing monuments. And in fact, you could argue that the, within northern British context, the stone circle was invented in Orkney. I know that's a bold thing to say, but that's actually what I believe. 
Um, and this was also the time when the Ness of Brogga was in action. Yeah, and there's a fantastic, amazing archaeological site, which, um, and also when Mays Howe had been built. So you have this complex of monuments, and the Ness of Brogga may well have been a, a place where people who are coming from far and wide were accommodated. So you've got these gigantic buildings and gigantic evidence for feasting. You know, you've got the big midden. And just as people had flocked to the Boyne Valley in Ireland in preceding centuries to see the wonders of the world at Newgrange and now from Douth, those huge passage tombs, so people then came to Orkney and said, wow, this is amazing. They would take part in the midwinter solstice celebrations and they would see the new kind of pottery that the people in Orkney had invented, the so-called groovedware pottery, and they would adopt that elsewhere. So I think here at Cairn Papel, this stone circle represents an element of monumental um, architecture and the practices that went with it that was directly adopted from Orkney. And this may well have been a power play thing. Yeah? So if you're an ambitious person in the late Neolithic and you've had the wherewithal to go up to Orkney, which is no mean feat from Cairn Papel, they probably would have, have sailed you know, much of the way, um, you will show off your power by saying, hey folks, I can make the sun come back and the days get longer again. Let's just build this monument and I'll show you. So that's a way of really underlining somebody's power. So, so the people who built this were, were saying, we can control the movement of the planets. That's pretty amazing. The great thing about having climbed up here is that I don't get to descend, which is always exciting. And it was so interesting to hear Alison talk through all the different phases of the site and the, um, the difficulties of interpreting it and also the fact that you just have to make a decision about what elements of it you want to show and want to hide. And it really emphasises that these sites changed so much during the, their lives, the many lives they had, that we shouldn't get too hung up on, you know, there being one definitive version of a site. What was it like? Well, that changed and changed over time. Probably nowhere more so than at Cairn Papal Hill. <laughs> Join me next time on the streets of Glasgow as we talk to someone who has actually built a monumental stone circle. Site Hill was the first to be built in Scotland for three and a half thousand years and it gives us a unique insight into the big questions we've been asking all through this series. Who builds these monuments? Why? And how do ordinary people use them? you've enjoyed this program then please do share it or even better like and review it wherever you get your podcasts it really does help us reach other people who might be interested 
and you can support more programme making with a small donation at ko-fi.com forward slash stone me. See you next time on Stone Me, investigating Scotland's oldest places. Thank you.